It's always a good feeling to accomplish something. Whenever you set a goal and meet that goal, there is a sense of satisfaction. If you're like me, when you have several things to do in a day or in a week, you make a list so you can check items off once you've accomplished them. And it's a good feeling to look at the list and see most of the items crossed off or maybe a check mark beside them. If that's the way you are wired, then you really feel that way when you have done something so monumental by taking the time to work through the large doctrinal section of the book of Romans consisting of chapters 1 through 11. That is an immense task. As you work your way through those 11 chapters, you notice that there are very few exhortations in those chapters. Most of the content of chapters 1 through 11 is instruction. In this message, however, we come to the practical application section of the letter as we embark on a study of Romans chapter 12. Please turn there with me and follow along as I begin reading actually back in chapter 11, verse 33, and then we'll read through chapter 12, verse 2. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As I mentioned a moment ago, chapter 12 begins the major application section of this book. For 11 chapters, Paul has been instructing and teaching. Now he begins to apply what he's been teaching. By the way, this was a very common pattern for Paul. If you've studied his writings, then you know that. In several of his letters, he begins by laying a doctrinal foundation... And then he follows that with practical application. For example, Ephesians breaks down very evenly. Chapters 1 through 3, you have doctrine. 4, 5, and 6, duty. Colossians 1 and 2, doctrine. 3 and 4, duty. This is Paul's pattern. He wanted to make sure that we see and understand that Christian living is based on solid biblical doctrine. Otherwise, our applications as well-meaning as they may be, can often end up being sloppy and misguided. It's really a sad sight to see a very sincere Christian diligently applying applying himself to things that God doesn't even require of him. Let me give a couple of examples. Because of inaccurate theology and doctrine, some Christians think that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, even though there's nothing in Scripture to indicate that. 
and they tried to impose all the Sabbath rules onto Sunday. Beloved, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath. Sunday never has been and never will be. Saturday is the Sabbath, but under the new covenant, we are not under the Sabbath laws and restrictions. You have to feel sorry for some little boys whose parents believe that Sunday is the Sabbath because those little boys have to sit around all Sunday afternoon in a little Lord Fauntleroy suit because their parents have tried to impose the Saturday Sabbath restrictions onto Sunday. What a terrible way of helping your little guy look forward to Sundays. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't set aside Sundays for our corporate worship gathering. You know me better than that. I'm just saying that Sunday is not the Sabbath, and there's nothing wrong with playing catch on Sunday afternoon or doing other activities of enjoyment and relaxation. To say that there's something wrong with those kinds of things is to base an application on inaccurate theology and doctrine. Here's another example. Because of inaccurate theology and doctrine, some Christians believe that they are under the obligation by God to give 10%, a 10% tithe of their money to the church. So they grudgingly give that 10% of their net. Do you realize that God would rather you give 9% willingly and joyfully instead of 10% grudgingly? No question. Beloved, understand we are, we are not under a 10% tithe. The Jews were under a tithe because they lived in the nation of Israel, which was a theocracy. So their tithe was actually a national tax, and it wasn't 10%. It was 10% twice a year and a third of a tenth uh, once, once a year. So the total was actually co- close to 24%. In addition to that required payment, they were exhorted to give gifts and free will offerings to the Lord. Now, the same thing is true of us. There's an exact parallel. We are required and obligated to pay our taxes because of the country we live in, and we see that in Romans 13 and several other passages. And in addition to that, we are exhorted to give to the Lord. But God never specifies an amount when he encourages you to give to him. You can search the New Testament in vain for any mention of an uh, obligatory tithe for our giving. Instead, when you read about giving in the New Testament, God says we should give willingly, joyfully, regularly, sacrificially, consistently, abundantly, systematically, but he never specifies an amount. I often say this, well, listen, if all you want to give to the Lord is 10%, that's fine, but don't teach that to others and limit their giving to the Lord. It's just another example where inaccurate theology and doctrine lead to a misguided application. So Paul always taught theology and doctrine first before giving applications. Proper behaving is based on proper believing. And as D. Edmund Hebert put it, quote, the history of Christendom reveals the tragic results when the vital relationship between doctrine and conduct is lost. Doctrinal understanding not only gives us clarity as to what we should apply to our lives and how it should be applied, 
But doctrinal understanding also gives us the internal motivation to live the Christian life. External rules without any internal motivation do not last very long. That's one of the reasons why we see some Christians experiencing burnout in their Christian lives. They have no doctrinal understanding of their position in Christ, so internal motivation isn't present, and you can only go so long on the externals. So, my point is this. Paul linked doctrine and duty together. Position and practice. That is why he uses the word therefore here in chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. As you can see from reading this verse, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, is, is exhorting us to do something. He says, I, I beseech you, or depending on your translation, I urge you, I appeal to you, some translations say. When you stop to think about it, it is astonishing for either God the Holy Spirit or Paul to use the word appeal or beseech or even urge. God the Holy Spirit beseeches us. Isn't that amazing? There is a tenderness in this exhortation. God doesn't have to urge us or beseech or appeal to us to do anything, but he does. He could justifiably use the word demand. Brothers, I demand you to do this. But that's not the way it's worded. It's worded with a tenderness and appeal. He urges us. He beseeches us. And the same thing could be said about Paul. Whether you look at the verse, and of course, Paul wrote it. The Holy Spirit wrote it. That's our understanding of the doctrine of inspiration. It's a dual authorship, 100% Paul's thoughts, 100% the Holy Spirit. So it's amazing to think about the Holy Spirit beseeching us. But the same thing goes for Paul. He was an apostle with the authority of Christ. As an authoritative apostle, he could have commanded, demanded. I demand you, Romans, to do this. But that's not what he says. He urges and beseeches and appeals to us to do something. Before we talk about what we are to do, please notice the basis of the exhortation. The basis is the mercies of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That refers to all the things Paul has taught in the earlier chapters about justification and forgiveness, propitiation, union with Christ, being under grace and not law, the Spirit indwelling us, coming glory, security, God's faithfulness, divine election. Now think of those things, beloved, for just a moment. Our sins have been forgiven never to be held against us again. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to us so that it is on our legal record <coughs> and in our spiritual bank account. The Lord Jesus suffered the wrath of God in our place and satisfied God's righteous demands against sin. By faith we have been joined to Christ and we are new creations in Him. We are under grace and not the Mosaic law. God has given us His Spirit to indwell us 
Because of God's faithfulness, we are certain of future glory. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. And all of this is true, not because of ourselves, but because we were unconditionally chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Those are the mercies of God to us. And it's on that basis that we are exhorted here in verse 1 to act. And consider this. Think about this contrast. Pagan religions often require people to offer sacrifices in order to obtain the mercy of their gods. But in Christianity, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices in response to God's mercy. There is a huge difference. So that leads us to what we're supposed to do. What is the exhortation here in verse 1? It is this. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament were dead ones. So this is something different. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. I'm sure you've heard it said that many times this is more difficult than a dead sacrifice because one of the problems we have is that since our bodies are living, then our living sacrifice keeps wanting to crawl off the altar. I'm sure you can relate to that. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Now think with me about this. This this approach to the Christian life is so different than the approach that many Christians take today to the Christian life. What I mean is, many Christians go to church, seminars, conferences, Bible studies, etc. for what they can get out of it. That's the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. We shouldn't view view our relationship with Christ in terms of what we can get out of it. We've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The emphasis of this text is what we are to give. That doesn't sound so right to us. Hold it. That, That sounds too human. But that's what the text says. The exhortation here is very specific. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Now, why does Paul specify our bodies? Why didn't he just say, give your life to God? Why specify our bodies? Because our bodies are the vehicles through which our new life in Christ expresses itself, and our bodies are the vehicles through which our sin nature tries to work. We see this back in chapter 6. Just back up a few chapters for this reminder from chapter 6, where Paul teaches us that our sinful disposition wants to use our bodies to express its sinfulness. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. This is a present tense command which emphasizes ongoing action. So the idea is, don't let sin reign in your mortal body like it did before salvation. And here again, Paul emphasizes the fact that sin manifests itself through our body. For example, when we sin with our words, we use our tongues to sin. When we sin by stealing, we use our hands to sin. If we sin sexually, then we use our sexual organs to sin. When we harbor malicious 
or evil thoughts. We use our minds to sin. Sin manifests itself through our bodies. So we are commanded not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Before we were regenerate, our sinful disposition reigned like a king over our physical bodies. That's why verse 6 of this chapter refers to the body as the body of sin. Before we were Christians, our sinful disposition used our bodies as a vehicle to perform evil deeds. But all that was changed because of our death with Christ and resurrection with Christ, as Paul teaches here in chapter 6. So we are supposed to continually refuse to allow our sinful disposition to use our body as a vehicle. Verse 13 says, and, Paul wants to add more, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The previous command in verse 12 dealt with the proper use of our entire body. This command deals with the proper use of individual members of our human body. Our sinful disposition wants to use our eyes, our ears, tongues, hands, feet, brains, and sexual members in ways that are offensive to God because that's how we used to live. Verse 19 says that very thing. Paul says in verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you, and he says this is your past, just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, And of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness unto holiness. You see, we used to use the members of our bodies in ways that are offensive to God, but we shouldn't do that any longer. Instead, verse 13 says we should present ourselves to God and our members as instruments of righteousness to God. Not only are we to present our bodies to God as a whole, Verse 13 gets even more specific by saying we should present the individual members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. That is the beauty of the song that we sang earlier. Take my hands, take my voice, take my life, take every part of me to use for your glory. We are called on not only to just generally present our bodies, but to dedicate each individual member or part of our bodies to God to be used in ways that are pleasing to Him. We are to present our eyes, our ears, our tongues, our hands, our feet, our brains, our sexual members to God as instruments of righteousness. So this is very similar to what Paul says in Romans 12.1. We're to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, and then we are to live each day of our lives in accord with that presentation. Why does the Lord want our bodies? Because according to 1 Corinthians 6, the believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he wants to use it for his glory. Now back to Romans chapter 12. So we see in chapter 6 that our sin nature wants to use our bodies to express its sinfulness, and that's why this offering of our bodies is to not only be living, it is also to be holy. Notice verse 1 again, I beseech you, I urge you, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, 
Use your body in a holy way. Use your eyes. Use your mind. Use your hands. Use every part of your body in a holy way. And verse 1 says, This is very pleasing to God, which is why Paul uses the word acceptable or well-pleasing. Now think about that thought for a second. What an encouraging thought that is. God is pleased when I present my sin-tainted and sin-stained body to him. God is pleased. That's, that's almost unbelievable. Newell put it this way, quote, that any creature should be able to offer what could please the infinite creator is wonderful. But that such wretched fallen ones as the sons of men should do so is a marvel of which only the gracious God himself knows the death. Think about it, beloved. We can do something that is well-pleasing to the God of the universe by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And the end of verse 1 says, this is our, depending on your translation, reasonable service or spiritual service of worship. We talked just last week about why the translations are so different here at this point, and both are valid translations. The phrase reasonable service emphasizes the fact that this is the least we could do in light of God's mercies. The phrase spiritual service of worship emphasizes the fact that this is the most please catch this, this is the most pleasing way we can worship God in our era. Sometimes on Sundays we will say this. This is not a bad statement, but we'll say, I'm going to church to worship. And we, we all know what we mean by that. But we also ought to say on Monday, I'm going to work to worship. Or I'm going to school to worship. I'm going to the factory to worship. I'm going to the office to worship God. I'm going to the shop to worship God. I'm going to the garage to worship God. I'm going to the field to worship God. I'm going to practice to worship God. The point is, when we present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, then everything we do with our bodies is worship because we do it as unto the Lord. You know very well that worship is not just what we do on Sundays, but we have to remind ourselves of that because it's so ingrained in us that Sunday is the day of worship. We worship on Sunday, and then we work on Monday. You know, we do, this, we do the sacred thing, the spiritual thing on Sunday, and then the secular thing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then we rotate back around to the sacred thing on Sunday. That's a completely convoluted view of what it means to be a child of God. Worship is not just what we do on Sundays. Worship is the offering of everyday life to God when we present our bodies as living sacrifices. That's why Paul could tell in the, the first century slaves in the church at Colossae, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. I mean, that verse is a tremendous verse in and of itself, but when you put it in the context of it being written to slaves, how much spiritual stuff could a first century slave do? Ever thought about that? With no freedom, 
His entire life or her entire life is mapped out. Here's what you do from the time you get up till the time you go to bed. What kind of Christian stuff, ministry stuff, could a first century Christian slave do? And yet Paul says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. And you will receive a reward from the Lord. Why? Because everything we do as, uh, as a child of God is spiritual. It's all worship. Worship is the offering of everyday life to God when we present our bodies as living sacrifices. That's what Paul and the Holy Spirit are calling us to do in this verse. This is, this is the kind of commitment we made at salvation, but, but it was made with far less information. So Paul is basically saying this, in light of all that I've taught you in chapters 1 through 11, you need to, in a sense, reaffirm that commitment to the Lord. And this is very parallel to marriage. When you say, I do, you mean it. But you make that pledge with limited information. No, no matter how long you have been seeing someone, you make it with limited information. So after 10 years or 25 years or whatever, you need to make it again. In a sense, you can say it's a once and for all commitment. And in another sense, it's an ongoing commitment that you make. Or to put it another way, verse 1 calls for a specific action. And verse 2 calls for a resultant lifelong process. Because verse 2 says, and. So this, this, is, this is, goes with it. In, in a sense, you can't really separate these two. So you present your body as a living sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. J.B. Phillips translates the first phrase of this verse, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. I love that translation. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. This is a present tense verb, which means that this pressure will have to be resisted continuously for the rest of our lives. It's an ongoing battle. This world that we live in is trying to squeeze us into its mold. The world has its own value system, which is quite different than God's value system. God's value system is composed of that which is eternal, namely his word and people. The world's value system is composed of self and things. Therefore, we are exhorted here not to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold and its value, its value system. Beloved, surely you see that pressure in your life. If you don't see it, if you don't realize it's there, it probably means you're just totally giving into it. Surely you understand as a child of God, you're swimming upstream in comparison to this world. There is a constant pressure for the world to get you to think like it thinks and value what it values and, and have the priorities that it has. This is a constant pressure that we have as believers. So we are exhorted not to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold and its value system. Lenski said it this way, quote, there is danger that the Christian may adopt at least some of the world's ways, run with worldly men as 1 Peter 4, 4 cautions, especially when they mock us if we do not. 
Christians sometimes imagine that they can do this without injury to themselves, can remain unspotted from the world amid worldly unchristian associations and activities, amid worldly and questionable pleasures, to howl a bit with the wolves, to do as the Romans do because we are in Rome, to avoid the abuse of the world and not to lose all this tainted pleasure and advantage while still holding fast to Christ does not seem so wrong. And then he makes this insightful statement. The resultant casualties are many and exceedingly sad. Oh, how true that is. The resultant tragedies, casualties, are many and exceedingly sad. He's right. It's heartbreaking how many Christians are conformed to this world. You 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 can't tell any difference between them and unbelievers. They talk the same way. They do the same things. They use the same language. They have the same priorities. There's just nothing, no distinction in, in their lives. Instead of that, verse 2 says we should be transformed. This is the Greek word metamorphaomai from which we get our English word metamorphosis. A metamorphosis is the amazing change of a lowly worm into a beautiful butterfly. And here again, we see the idea that true, lasting change isn't external conformity to some external standards, rules, and regulations. True, lasting change is internal transformation. So this is what Paul is saying. Don't let the world squeeze you from the outside in, but rather be changed from the inside out. Don't be outwardly conformed, but rather inwardly transformed. And Paul tells us this happens by the renewing of your mind. Beloved, we can't get away from the fact that effective Christian living involves, not exclusively, I'm not saying that, please don't mishear me, not exclusively, but it involves in large measure what you feed your mind on, what you think about or how you think. A lot of Christians don't like to hear that because they want to live the Christian life exclusively by, by experiences, feelings, and their emotions without ever thinking biblical thoughts and thinking hard and clearly about things in life. God never intended the Christian life to be some kind of mindless type of experience. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. In large measure, again, not exclusively, but in large measure, we are what we think. That's why the Bible places so much emphasis on the importance of sound doctrine. Why do you think Paul spends so much time in his letters just instructing before he exhorts? Because he understood this, that there has to be accurate thinking. There has to be clear thinking, biblical thinking that impacts life's choices and decisions and priorities. In fact, you might find it interesting to know that the most emphasized subject of the New Testament is, and most Christians don't know the answer to this, the most emphasized subject of the New Testament. If you add up all the verses in the Bible and then you begin to categorize them into subjects, you will find that the most emphasized subject of the New Testament is warning against false doctrine. That's right. Warning against false doctrine. 
God warns against that so often because he knows how impactful that is. And he knows that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Sound doctrine, accurate theology is tremendously important. Unfortunately, today there is a dangerous tendency to sacrifice and compromise God's truth for the sake of a supposed love and unity. But those two things, love and unity, are often, when, when in this context, used in this context, are misdefined. God never intended that. Listen to this poem. It illustrates the point. A poem about two sisters, love and unity, who married two husbands, doctrine and truth. With hearts so kind and gentle and sympathetic eye, with touching deep affection and loyal tender tie, was love betrothed to doctrine to hold him all her days and walk the isle of gladness united in his ways. Her younger sister also had qualities as fair of caring selfless kindness and warmth without compare. Thus unity was drawn to the husband of her youth and pledged herself forever to be the bride of truth. But time, with bitter envy, across the testing years, pursued the slow erosion of happiness to tears, till love began to weary of doctrine's pleasant voice, and unity grew cold to the partner of her choice. Then love began to notice the charms of heresy, and awed by his opinions, she wanted to be free. And unity perceived that her virtues were desired by many, many others whose ways she so admired. At length, two precious unions, so promising, so blessed, were darkened by delusion, disloyalty, unrest. Till came the day of sorrows and rending vows of youth when love divorced her doctrine and unity her truth. What a tragedy it is when God's people throw out truth in the name of some kind of false unity and false love. Truth is of utmost importance because, for many reasons, but one we see right here in verse 2, because we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And beloved, this is why it's so important that we take in the Word of God on a regular basis, not just Sundays. We need to read Scripture, memorize key verses of Scripture, study God's Word, because we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as we do these things, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, not being conformed to this world that is resisting this pressure, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. As we do these things, we will see, as the last part of verse 2 says, that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Frankly, many Christians are afraid of God's will. They are. Many. Not many will admit it, but every now and then they will. Many Christians are afraid of God's will. They think that if they totally surrender to God, as these verses exhort, then God will do something. He will make them do something so they will purposely be miserable. 
That is not at all an uncommon view in the heart of a Christian. As I said, not a lot will admit that, but deep down it's like, if I surrender that way, God will, he's going to make me do something just so I'll be miserable. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. God's will, as the end of this verse says, God's will is good, acceptable, perfect. There is nothing better for us, more well-pleasing, nothing more perfect than God's will. And those Christians who have really surrendered to him in this way can testify to that fact. So that's what we are exhorted to do. Someone has said it this way, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices means signing our names at the bottom of a blank piece of paper and letting God fill in the details. That's a pretty good way of saying it. Just sign your name unconditionally at the bottom of a piece of paper and let God fill in all the specifics and particulars. Having seen the mercies of God, beloved, that's the least we could do. Now my guess is, in a crowd this size, there are some Christians hearing these words who have not done what these verses exhort us to do. You have not completely yielded everything to God. You know it. You know it. You know you're holding back some specific area of your life that you refuse to let go of. You refuse to bring under the lordship of Christ. God wants you to let go and offer your body as a living sacrifice to him. Until you do, until you do, you will never see that God's will for your life is good, well-pleasing, and perfect. Give yourself as a living sacrifice today. Let's pray to that end as we close. Our Father, we see what we are called to do. That is, we see the response that we are called to give based on the mercies, your mercies, that are delineated throughout Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way through the first 11 chapters. Certainly, in light of all those mercies, which are so undeserving, the least we can do, the least we can do is offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That is our spiritual service of worship. Sometimes we want to substitute and say, well, I'll come to church to worship, but I'm not going to let God have control of everything in my life. And so our worship then is really a sham. It's a sham because our spiritual service of worship, that the highest form of our worship is to present our bodies as living sacrifices. So, Father, may we do that, even if we have in the past, once again, just as we talked earlier about the analogy of marriage, it's good to reaffirm our commitment to one another in marriage, reaffirm our devotion in the same way it's good for us in our walk with you, healthy to reaffirm that commitment. And maybe for some Christians here today, this would be the very first time. They've come to faith in Christ. They've received new life in Christ, but 
Something has held them back from really presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's just stubbornness. You know, Lord, you know. May your spirit work in that man or woman's heart so that he or she, this very moment, would respond to this appeal by the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit of God, to present his or her body as a living sacrifice. It's the least we can do. And so we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.